And for a rousing action-adventure epic, discover the hidden fortress. A young feisty princess must escape through enemy territory with the royal treasure to restore her shattered kingdom. She is led through adventure against impossible odds by two bumbling greedy peasants and a valiant crafty general played by the legendary Toshiro Mufumi. Harry Ricky of the Boston Herald tells us the acknowledged inspiration for Star Wars, The Hidden Fortress, is earthly fun that easily surpasses Lucas' trilogy. Shotland Cinemascope, this high-action epic is specially presented in its original widescreen format to preserve the filmmaker's artistic intent. Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. Camera action. It's another exciting episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, from the Fire and Water family of podcasts. And joining me for this episode, where we are talking about Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, is Dead Bothan Spies host, among other podcasts, Ryan Daly. Ryan, thanks for doing the show. Thank you for having me. I'm. I, I told you how much of a fan I was of the Blues Brothers and how I loved Batman growing up and. You asked me to talk about a movie that I'd never seen before. <laughs> but oh, okay. Curve okay. There, Ryan. <laughs> Anybody can talk about the Blues Brothers or Batman. Come on. This is the Hidden Fortress. Now, um, there are a great many reasons to talk about the Hidden Fortress. Of course, like I said, it's by Akira Kurosawa, who is you know, considered by many, uh, many more knowledgeable than I, to be the greatest filmmaker of all time. So there's a million reasons to, to talk about this movie. But the reason I had Ryan on is because, for those of you who aren't aware, and you probably a lot of you are at this point because it sort of permeated the culture, but The Hidden Fortress was an early uh, movie that inspired George Lucas to make Star Wars. Uh, if you go back and look at uh, the plot of Star Wars, of course, anyone who's listening to this knows the plot of Star Wars, you'll find a great many similarities uh, to be found in The Hidden Fortress. And Akira Kurosawa was one of Lucas's early um, inspirations. So I thought it would be perfect to have the host of Dead Both and Spies here to talk about The Hidden Fortress. So I'm just going to get into a very bare-bones synopsis of the plot. We're not going to reveal the ending because, as we will probably get on get into later on the show, you should see this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to ruin it for anybody. So super uh, you know, overview, as uh, Shag would put it, the uh, 10,000-foot overview, where now I will now talk for 30 minutes straight. Um, two bedraggled peasants, Tahe and Mata Shishi, played by Minoru Chiaki and Kamatari Fujiwara, are taken for soldiers of the defeated Akizuki clan and are forced to bury the dead, then dig for gold in the Akizuki castle with other prisoners. After an uprising, Tahe and Mata Shishi escape. Near a river, they find gold marked with the crescent of the Akizuki clan. They thereafter travel with the general and the defeated Akizuki, the general of the defeated Akizuki clan, Makabe Rokurota, the great Tashiro Mifune, while escorting Princess Yuki Akizuki, <laughs> this is tough. Misa Uihara and what remains of her family's gold to a secret territory. In order to keep her identity secret, Yuki poses as a mute. During the mission, the peasants uh, get in the way and sometimes try to seize the gold from uh, Roku Rota. Uh, they are later joined by a farmer's daughter, Toshiko Higuchi, who they acquire from a slave trader. Eventually, they are captured and held by Roku Roka. Ruka Rota's rival, say that ten times fast, who later unexpectedly sides with the princess and Ruka Rota. Um, 
at this point, that's we're going to hit the, the third part of the film, which I'm not going to mention. Um, I had never seen The Hidden Fortress before this. I had, shamedly, I've only seen one Akira Kurosawa film before this, and that was The Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before I'm going to get into it, Ryan, what was your impression of The Hidden Fortress? Uh, well, before getting into that, even, I I was a little bit more familiar with Kurosawa, but this film, strangely, somehow slipped under my radar hmm. um, because I had heard of the comparisons of his work to Star Wars. And in particular, at some point, I had heard that The Seven Samurai was one of the inspirations for Star Wars. So I watched that movie, and I was like, okay, I can see some of the parallels, but not sure. Uh, and then I saw Yojimbo and... I was actually much more familiar with uh, three of his movies that were sort of adaptations of Shakespeare's work. Uh, he did a movie called The Bad Sleep Well, which was kind of Kurosawa's take on Hamlet, a movie called Ran or Ron, which was his version of Othello, and the one that I liked the most, a movie called Throne of Blood, which was his take on Macbeth. And the guy who plays General Rokoroda is the same actor who plays the star of the Macbeth one, Throne of Blood. Uh, and that was all uh, that I was familiar with. So when you mentioned The Hidden Fortress, I was like, that's the one that I haven't seen. So I looked it up. I was like, this is the one that yeah, inspired yep, Star Wars. Yep. Clearly, it's, it's from the beginning. The way the story opens up, these, these two bedraggled peasants, Tahe and Marashichi, they are a somewhat nastier, greedier, more selfish version of C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah, one of them's tall, one of them's short. <laughs> um, they're bungling. They they don't get along very well, but they're thrown together by circumstance a lot. Um, and it, just the way Kurosawa establishes it from the beginning, and if you watch the two movies parallel, it's it's so obvious. We're We're walking behind them, so we get this kind of shot from the back. We're after some major battle... Um, we're just kind of getting the, the sense that something major and important has happened and that these guys who we're following are on the losing side. And then there's literally a soldier running through the shot and we're following him. And then he is chased as kind of horsemen come from both sides of the camera, kind of overwhelming us as they flank him and execute the soldier. It is just like the Star Destroyer buried yep. on the Corellian Corvette. It's, <laughs> you watch it and you're like, oh my god, this is, this is the opening of Star Wars. It's, it's beautiful. And right from that, it like sucked me in, just like this opening. I was like, I am committed. I am going to enjoy this movie. Um, so, And for the rest of the movie, I, I mostly did. I, I really liked it. Um, the, the, the characters were every time they got to be kind of more annoying than they were worth, they did something that was a little bit endearing mm-hmm. or, or just comical enough that, uh, that I forgave them and wanted to see them stick with the plot. Um, General Rokoroda, I can't think of the actor's name. I know Tishiro Mifune. Tishiro Mifune. Um, he's got such a presence. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, yes. He is it, magnetic. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I would watch that guy in any movie. Um, and he's equally he's equally as captivating in Throne of Blood. I recommend that movie for anybody too. Um, it's just, yeah, it's great to watch. He, he every scene, I was like, this guy, he just has that quality where he can be so quiet and still, and you see him and you're like, that guy is a badass. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't have to dress like a badass. He doesn't have to announce his presence. He looks fairly comical in this movie. He look. He has these sort of shorts on, which are not terribly threatening. But his face is like you do not want to mess with that guy. 
And, and maybe it's because I, I like superheroes that I just forgave that. I was like, yeah, he's kind of dressed like Robin. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was like, if he can pull it off, I'm sure we could get some actor to do that. It's amazing to think that Lucas apparently considered offering the role of Ben Kenobi to Mifune. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, the mind reels <laughs> that, that idea of what that might have been like. Well, Obi-Wan Kenobi sounds like a Japanese name, so why wouldn't he mm. be? Like, it's, I mean, Alec Guinness, just, uh, you can't speak ill of that guy or no. that performance. Oh, no, 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 but not. if I could see anybody else playing that part, I could see this guy. So. Yeah, I mean, and I want to make sure that, uh, you know, again, my, my main inspiration for, for wanting to profile this movie, because it is sort of very very far afield of what I've been talking about on the show previously, is that, yeah, it has that Star Wars connection, but I don't want to limit it to that, because obviously the film stands by itself as, a, as an amazing work. I mean, and it's funny, it's cons- I, I did a lot of research, not I mean, a lot, uh, compared to, say, Shag or something, or Chris Franklin, but I did some research on this after I watched it, and... It's it's interesting. This was uh, Kurosawa's like most successful film. This was mm-hmm. considered like a blockbuster and considered like a uh, almost like a not a not a middle brow movie, but a crowd pleaser. It yep. was it was considered like a, a a big you know blockbuster type summer movie as opposed to the more arty stuff he had done earlier with Seven Samurai and Throwing a Blood and Ujimbo. And this was sort of. And and this was his first movie in at what they call Toho Scope, yeah, uh, which is essentially widescreen. And right, right. He really does take advantage. I mean, you you mentioned that that scene of all the soldiers coming in and grabbing that one guy, and and Lucas uh, George Lucas mentions this apparently on some documentary about Kurosawa that he's in, where he talks about how a lot of this movie features the camera, of, you know, a wide widescreen camera taking in a lot of visuals, and then a lot of stuff comes into the frame. And then exits the frame while the camera remains in place. Uh, there's not a lot of cross-cutting or back – not cross-cutting, but there's not a lot of moving the camera around. It's almost like painterly. It's like the stuff just kind of rumbles in and then rumbles out. And, yeah, that scene is very reminiscent of that, of where all these it's, – it's amazing. And when you think about, too – like how much coordination that must have required. Mm-hmm. There's there's shots in this movie where uh, like the two peasants are are roped into looking for the gold and bar- there's hundreds of people in a shot mm-hmm. and they're all costumed and they're all out in the middle of wherever you know and it's like boy just the coordination of this must have been amazing and there is a there is another shot late at night where a bunch of them a bunch of the soldiers are laying around and like a lot of them are sleeping and it's a full moon mm-hmm. and. I'm thinking, well, unless Mufune, unless Mufune, unless Kurosawa faked it with like a green, with like a matte painting, which I don't even know if they had matte paintings in Japanese filmmaking in 1958. Like he must, like is that a real shot? And it means that means he lugged, lugged, lugged all those guys out there, knowing when the moon would be full. You know, like this is the event coordination. I mean, I guess I'm jumping ahead because I didn't really see what I liked. It. I enjoyed it very much myself. I mean, I. Um, it was funny as I was watching and I was really impressed by just how beautiful this movie is to look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also, there's a lot of like deep perspective shots where you've got characters in the foreground and somebody else kind of far in the background that you need to sort of be paying attention to both. Um, especially like in shots when they get to the, the hidden fortress, um, because there's all these kind of mountainous shots and you're either looking far up a hill or down like a kind of a low angle into into a valley, 
and you get characters kind of walking around and you spot the the princess for the first time, you spot Rokoroda for the first time, while you've got the peasants kind of in the foreground bumbling around doing their shtick. Yeah, and it's funny, the peasants do kind of vary back in uh, Tahe and uh, Mata Shishi, mm-hmm. do go back and forth between being bumbling and sort of endearing and then actually kind of nasty. I mean, there's a point where they uh, wrote a ro- roca, ro- it's hard to say, <laughs> Rokoroda takes off for a little bit and they're left with the princess and she's sleeping and there's a point where they basically f- flip a coin to decide who's going to have sex with her. Right. While she sleeps, you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple points where they're like, oh, I like you guys, but this is a little bit rapey. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's awkward. They're... I mean, I think the reason they get away with it, that scene in particular, is because uh, the actress playing Princess Yuki Azuzuki, mm-hmm. uh, Misha Uihara, is is really powerful. I mean, yeah. she has her face is stunning. Uh, in terms of just she's very beautiful, but she's also just got an amazing screen presence. And you get the sense that if those guys even tried it, she would just kick their ass. Mm-hmm. So you feel like even though she's sleeping, she's under no threat. Now, the in that scene, of course, also the the um, the farmer's daughter who comes along with them decides to defend the princess and stands by her with a giant rock. Yeah, it's, and basically it's great. <laughs> to throw it at them and they just cower in fear. So even though that's a really sleazy moment, you're like, well, these two are never going to pull it off anyway. So, it, you know, you kind of they sort of get away with it. But yeah, I mean, you really when you do watch it, you see that it's like, well, we've got the two bumbling guys that the story is being told through we've got the kind of wizardy guy with the sword who has an old foe who he squares off against mm-hmm. uh at, at, and there's a giant fortress hence the title that they have to go through there's the princess i mean they're really it's sort of amazing when you watch it like yeah wow this really they're you know you could see what lucas did he just was like oh let's take this take this take this you know and he just used it for his own ends and it's sort of amazing and it, it's um I, I i haven't read whether I guess Kurosawa must have known about this because Kurosawa lived into the nineties. Mm-hmm. I would love to know what he thought of this. You know, like that his, one of his films was an inspiration for this global movement in filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, would he be flattered? Would he be kind of like ticked off? Like, well, you know, that's, that's, you really kind of cheapened it or you exploited my work? Uh, yeah. I mean, I know I, that I don't know. I mean, later, well, later on, Lucas helped fund one of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the one called uh, Keija Musha, I believe, I think is that one. It's one, one from the, um, the 80s, and Lucas helped fund it. Yeah. So I have to imagine Kurosawa must have been pretty pleased, <laughs> you know, because that's Star Wars money or, you know, right, right. E- Ewoks money or droids money or something that, that helped, you know, because apparently that. You know, during Kurosawa's fertile, most fertile period, which was the 50s and the 60s, he had a real rough time after that. I mean, he, he and Mufune did about, I think, 13 films together. Mm-hmm. And then they repaired, apparently their friendship hit a, hit a rough patch, and they, they never worked together again and sort of stayed distant. And Kurosawa had a really rough time, apparently, kind of out in the wilderness making these films that, you know, not many people wanted to see. And so I think it must have been nice to have somebody like Spielberg, who I think also helped out. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, and Lucas come in and help fund one of his movies. So I, I would imagine he was he was flattered, you know. I, I hope so, at least. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, another thing that I, I sort of learned by watching this film is, like, I don't know about you, but, like, when I was a, 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 when I was younger and I worked at a video store and I sort of sent myself to unofficial film school where I just rented everything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And I had a tough time with foreign films in the beginning because I – a lot of times if I didn't get them, I felt – 
was like like a dumb you know like i don't get this and if it was something that was considered like a masterpiece i was like i don't know i, I didn't you know and then i watched this film and the story is so simple that i feel like now this really really movie really is more about just the art of storytelling and the the beauty of the visuals in a lot of ways and then later on again that thing where lucas he talks about that 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 his great appreciation was the visuals of this film and the this film as i said is so beautiful to look at and the the story element's so sort of simple and told in bold strokes that i feel like oh, okay this there you're not really supposed to get a whole lot out of the story it really is more about the, the filmmaking itself sort of mm-hmm. for me when it comes when I do have trouble connecting with a foreign film, I find that it's usually an issue of pacing mm. um, because a lot of foreign films aren't paced like Western films because they're not concerned with the same sort of formulaic action beats that we kind of become accustomed to. And I didn't have that problem with this one because it is a pretty straightforward kind of adventure, sort of a chase movie or a, or a beat the clock movie. They do have an end game that they need to get to. There's just this natural rhythm and sense of movement throughout the story. This movie also had, I I had this amazing moment while I was watching it for the first time that I, I think it's like the burden of foreknowledge where what I knew about Star Wars informed how I was feeling about a scene in this movie. <laughs> and it's the moment where after the the party has rescued or purchased, liberated the, the farm girl, um, the farmer's daughter, whoever it is, they're, they're on the road and their cart is stopped by a group of soldiers. And faster than you can blink, Rokorota kicks into action. He kills two of the guys, and then he has to chase two of the other soldiers on horseback as they're going back to report him. And he jumps on a horse, and it's this dramatic chase scene. It actually kind of reminded me of the speeder bike chase in in Return of the Jedi. But once he chases them back to their camp, he is surrounded, and then he comes face-to-face with his old enemy, um, Toto Koro. Is the the other general. And I thought, okay, this is Obi-Wan versus Darth Vader. And I knew how that battle turned out in Star Wars. Right, right. (laughs) So I was like, oh, this guy's gonna die here. I was like, he he has to. Like it's it's sort of following that same story. I was like, so I was convinced that the hero, this badass guy, like he was doomed. And I was like, crap, I'm really digging this character. And it's like I'm having this complete emotional reaction based on what I think I, is going to happen because of another movie. Uh, and it was, yeah, it, it floored me. And I don't know if I want to spoil whether or not that, that plays out the same or it doesn't. But it's just, yeah, it, like my, my emotional response, like I was, I was already grieving for the character <laughs> as soon as that scene began because I was comparing it to Obi-Wan and Vader coming face to face in the Death Star. And yeah. yeah. And it was like, and if I hadn't seen Star Wars, then I would have come into that scene in a completely different attitude. Yeah, so, that's true. I never, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. You're right. You are, you can't help but feel like these beats are something similar that you've seen and that you're expecting a, a certain outcome. Yeah, that's true. It's a really, it's a really wonderful film. I mean, again, it's Kurosawa, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, you know, Scorsese and a lot of these people say, He's the greatest filmmaker of all time, so you'd really be hard-pressed to be, be surprised that this turned out to be a really great movie. Mm-hmm. And that, that scene, too, the, the fight scene I forgot to mention, is an incredible duel between these two guys. They're fighting with spears, and it's set up by the, the kind of bad guy, the, the guy we're, like, you know, um, 
Todokoro, he, he basically steps out and he tells all the other soldiers, don't even try and kill him. He's too, he, you're no match for this guy. Yep, yep, yep. And then they, they challenge each other to a duel, and Todokoro's like, go ahead, pick out your weapon. So Rokuroto is just walking around the circle of soldiers just gra- and just plucks their weapons out of their hand, tests mm-hmm. them, and throws them back. And they're like giving him space, and it's just the setup. It's like you, you absolutely feel it. it's like the, this is going to be good. Uh, and it starts off, the fight is very slow, it's very sort of ceremonial, and then it breaks into this moment where they're fighting kind of around obstacles, they're kind of cutting between these screens, and the, the sense of danger was real. I was waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I watched it, I think, ever since I mentioned to, to Ryan that I wanted to do it. I think I watched the film four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's available on, uh, I should mention this, it's available on Hulu. Yep. For anybody that is Hulu, because they have uh, a good chunk of the Criterion collection available for rent. And there it is. So uh, unless, I, I think we should, pro- we should probably just wrap it up here. Uh, I would recommend anybody watch this movie. I think it's thoroughly enjoyable. And I think if you have, like, kids that are maybe in the the you know the early maybe in the early teens and are like real heavy star wars fans i if if they're kind of like patient and can sit through maybe subtitles this might be something to show them because mm-hmm. it's it's got a, it it visually like i said it's very powerful and um one other thing i wanted to mention is this film is written up on starwars.com uh, apparently they have a section on that site which is all about the films that inspired <laughs> Star Wars. And I, I have to say, I'm so impressed by that. I thought yeah. that is wonderful that whoever is, you know, runs the Star Wars universe, you know, whoever at Lucasfilm does all that, they make – they take that time to introduce – because there are a lot of people who think cinema starts at Star Wars, you know, that there are like no movies that existed before Star Wars. And it, I think it was such a – it's such a, like, generous of spirit gesture mm-hmm. to put a page on the StarWars.com site that says, hey, here are films that came before Star Wars that helped that – that are in its DNA. And I was, I was just really impressed by that. I think that's a, that's a very like – I just – I just – repeating myself, very generous thing to do creatively to, to remind people of, hey, there's a lot of great stuff out there. It's not all just Star Wars. I'm assuming the movie The Searchers is on that list because – was that John – I think that was a John Ford movie. That's John Ford, yeah. Yeah, um, and there, there are some shots in that movie that you see Lucas just lifted that shot for some of the scenes on Tatooine um, around the, the Lars homestead when Luke goes back and sees after the stormtroopers have paid a visit to his uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. There are shots like that that are t- lifted directly from moments in The Searchers. Um, another great Western film. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. I guess one other thing I did want to mention is like the thing you noticed that one of the first things I noticed when watching Hidden Fortress is the, the camera wipes, mm-hmm. which is something that George Lucas used in Star Wars. And I can't think of another movie since uh, outside of the other Star Wars movies that <laughs> use that, use those pan wipes. I, no other movies do that anymore. And it, it's to me, it's like it's almost like Star Warsy. Mm-hmm. When you see those, you know, and for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, it's when the, you know, the next scene starts coming in on one side and you see it as it rolls across the screen. So at some point, if you wanted to stop the film, you would literally see half of the old scene and half of the new scene. You could potentially right. see half of half of Hoth, half of space, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's um, a, you're right. I can't think of another film since 1980 that's done that. Like, it would look weird if we saw it today, like in any other context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they used them in Jedi, but I don't, or even in the prequels, but I don't remember. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They used oh, them did in they? Okay. a couple times. I know, right. but but yeah, uh, yeah. Outside of that, 
outside of the Star Wars films. Like, yeah, like I think if I saw that in Mission Impossible, it would probably take me out of the movie. Yeah, like, hey, wait a minute, that's a what you, Star what are you Wars shot. To do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think you are, George Lucas? What's going so. on here? So yeah, uh, everybody, watch the Hidden Fortress. I think it's it's a little over two hours, and it's just you know a really wonderful film. And this does make me want to go and spend the time and watch some of these other Kurosawa films. I'm I'm woefully behind. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of you, Ryan, that you mentioned all these other ones that you've seen, and I want to I want to catch up. So, uh, so, so Throne of Blood is my number one. Is it okay? It's it's a little on the slow side, but it's visually stunning. It's got the same lead actor for you, may or right. for Shumi Mufune. Mufune. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's I highly recommend that one. So, all right, very cool. So that's the Hidden Fortress. Everybody, check it out. And uh, we are going to actually, uh, we're not going to wrap up here. We are going. We have a, a second bonus added attraction, which Ryan and I will be talking about after this break. And we're back, and as I mentioned, we have a, a second little bonus, uh, second feature here. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, Marvel's Ant-Man. Um, I finally saw the movie last week, and it seemed like a big enough release that I wanted to mention it, but for reasons we will get into in a moment, I didn't want to spend a whole episode on Ant-Man. So, Ryan, uh, what did you think of Ant-Man? Well, I've seen it three times, Whoa. so I, th- I think my thoughts on the movie are different than yours. Mm-hmm. Um. I really enjoyed it. Now, I also had a lot of problems with it, and it seems like those are mutually exclusive, and I'm going to try to explain how they're not. I like the character of Ant-Man. I have for years. I can't really explain that because there hasn't been a whole lot in the comics that would warrant <laughs> that appreciation for the character. No, I, I have an Aquaman try. No reason to explain why you like Ant-Man. <laughs> okay. Um, so... Something I have come to realize as I've been watching more of these Marvel Studios movies is I grade them much more favorably based on the level of fan service they give me. If they give me something from the comics that I've always wanted to see, I will prefer that movie to something that I know is objectively made better. And I've mentioned this on other podcasts, but I think the best made Marvel movies to date are the first Iron Man and Guardians of the Galaxy. Okay, right. But out of the 12 Marvel movies, I would rank those probably at number six and seven, or seven and eight even, because the other movies gave me more stuff that I wanted to see. And Ant-Man gave me a lot of what I wanted to see. Now, there are parts of the story that don't work. There are characters that don't work. There are parts that I was just, ah, I was cringing. I was like, why are you doing this? But ultimately, I think what Ant-Man, the movie, did best was the thing that it needed to do. And as an Aquaman fan, I think you should appreciate this, was that movie had one job and one job only, which was to make people, even maybe especially kids, think Ant-Man was cool. Yes. To see the powers used, to see how shrinking can be cool, to see how communicating with ants can be cool. And the movie did that better than anything else in the movie. Even if you think that was the only good thing that this movie did, it did that really, really well. So I, I give it a lot of credit just for that alone. So Interesting. Now, did it get better for you as you saw it multiple times, or did it stay – did you like it a lot and it stayed well, in that my, relative I, position? 
I didn't like my first viewing experience of this. And ironically, huh. that was I saw it first on the IMAX, big screen, IMAX 3D. And I don't know if it, I was seated in a weird position. I don't know if there was something <laughs> wrong with the projector or with my glasses. But I felt like I had an eyelash in my eye for half the movie. Ooh, yeah. um, and I didn't. I, I checked several times. Um, but it was just, it was cloudy, it was foggy, I didn't like the 3D effect, so I was really annoyed by that. So I, yeah, I left the theater thinking, I'm going to see this again tomorrow morning, so I can actually watch it. And I did like it a lot more on repeated viewings. Um, yeah, like I said, I mean, there are story issues. I think, I think the movie doesn't always know who the main character is and what story that it's trying to tell, or whose story it's trying to tell. Um, the villain is woefully underutilized. Um, then again, it's a pretty simple idea for the villain, so I don't know what more I wanted from him. But yeah, I just, I I loved the costume. I loved the ants. I loved the shrinking. Hmm. Um, so the 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 Ant Man fan in me got what he wanted. Got more than what he wanted. A little bit less than he would have liked, but. I can't say it. So yeah, that's it is I it is definitely on the upper half of my Marvel scale of movies. Okay. Um, what were your thoughts? Because clearly you didn't like it that much. Yeah, I well I went into it really expecting to like it a lot because I really like Paul Rudd, uh, and I have I've never been a fan of Ant Man, but I have zero problem with him. And in fact, I like the idea of giving Ant Man a movie. I thought that you know to me it was like Marvel. You know, it doesn't all just. Say, I mean, I. For, this will change, obviously, but for the long time, DC is like, movie-wise, we only have two characters. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Marvel's like, to hell with that. We can make a movie about anybody, and I love that attitude. I mean, mm-hmm. the Guardians of the Galaxy proved that, So, and that is my favorite Marvel movie. So I'm like, okay, I am totally on board for Ant-Man. I have no problem that, it, that it's a movie about him. I mean, you know, I, I read Ant-Man comics, so I was com- completely fine with that. So I went into it really hoping to like it and expecting to like it a lot. And, you know, I also try to force myself to go in with the idea of judging the movie for what it is and not for what it isn't. And what I mean by that is, of course, the Edgar Wright version that we'll never get to see. I am a massive fan of Edgar Wright, and I was really disappointed that he and Marvel parted ways. And I was like, boy, an Edgar Wright Marvel movie would have been amazing. Yeah. And I'm sad that we're never going to get to see that. And I tried to be like, look, you got to judge this movie on what it is, not saying, well, it would have been better if Edgar Wright did it, because that's not fair to the movie. You should judge it for what it is. So I, I think I saw it from that point of view. At least I hope I did. So the stuff in this in Ant Man around the margins, mm-hmm. I really liked. I liked uh, all of uh, uh, Scott Lang's buddies, Michael Pena, mm-hmm. uh, Pena, and the other guys. Like, and I loved all the 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 uh, the like the the setup stuff where they talk about the heist and they all yep. use like their voice, you know, like the same voices into like, and that was, that was actually, I thought that was an Edgar Wright detail. It's not, that was Peyton Reed. He did that. So I was like, good for him. Cause yep. I really liked that bit. Um, I liked, like I said, the stuff on the margins, but then the main thrust of the movie, I was utterly bored with. I thought the villain was just evil McEvilly. Mm-hmm. I mean, from just scene one, he's like, Hey, and you're like, Really? And you know, you're supposed to believe that uh, Hank Pym is this sort of genius, but he handed over his company to a guy who is practically dr- drizzling <laughs> slime on the floor. I mean, how can you hand the company over to this guy and then be shocked, shocked that he's doing evil things with it? I mean, I was like, oh, come on. So to me, the villain, a complete zero. 
uh, Evangeline Lilly, who I enjoy looking at. She's hot. Uh, I thought she was fine if kind of wait, wasted a little because she just sort of is just bitching through the whole movie, which to me felt a little like, you know, the one woman in the movie is naggy. Right. Um, and then the stuff with uh, Scott Lang's kid. Look, I, I don't have children. I will never have children. Mm-hmm. It would be nice if Hollywood screenwriters could find a way to motivate a character for any other reason other than their children. I do believe there are other things that can motivate people as they go through life. What drives me absolutely <laughs> crazy is that the motivation and the connection to the daughter in the comics is a thousand times more compelling than okay. what we got in the movie. Right, yeah. And it would be great for drama. In the comics, Scott Lang's daughter was dying. He needed to steal to save her life. How is that right? not a great motivating factor for the character? And they never do anything with it. Yeah, it, it's, it's basically it, like he's got to get a job. Like, really? That's the yeah, whole... And, it's, and I, I, think, I think that was the problem, was they kept on telling us that this is Scott Lang's story, that he's the hero of the movie. But they kept on showing us that all of the interesting stuff was between Hank Pym and his daughter. Yeah. And I kept waiting. The entire movie felt like a setup for Hope to become the Wasp. They established immediately that she was the most the most competent and the most qualified person to take up this superheroing role. She like and literally went, says that at one point. Yes, <laughs> and she demonstrates it and proves it countless times. And they go out of their way to manufacture reasons for her not to be the hero. And yeah. it's like, just stop in the third act put her in the damn costume like that i would have loved it if they had done that and i hope we see that in avengers infinity war um right 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 yeah i mean they're clearly setting it up and uh the one little like that was um a a kind of a meta nod which i did enjoy was uh because and this was something i didn't know i forget who mentioned this to me it might have even been you i don't know but somebody mentioned to me that hank pym was introduced into the Marvel universe before there was a Marvel universe. There was a story. Yeah, yeah there was a story in Tales to Astonish. Yeah, Tales, Tales to Astonish, Tales, which they even mentioned in the in in the movie. They even right. mentioned Tales to Astonish, which I thought was fun. He yeah, was his a, first his first appearance I think came out two months after Fantastic Four number one. Oh, was it after? I thought it was. It was. Before. It was right after Fantastic Four. Okay, so he was technically he's technically the second. Marvel, Marvel, like okay. a character from the Marvel age. But when he was introduced, he it wasn't meant he to wasn't be Ant Man. It was right. just a monster story. It right. was just guy shrinks down and has to fight giant ants. Right, and then Stanley and then, went back right, and right. said, "Oh wait, I can reuse that character to turn him into a superhero." Yep. And in this, and in the movie, they're they're setting up that that Hank Pym as Ant Man was sort of having adventures long before any of the current Marvel crop of heroes. Right. Which right. I thought that was a nice nod. I was like, oh, I like that idea that there were Marvel superheroes in the world. Before the ones we've all been seeing, the Avengers and everybody else. So I thought that was a nice, a nice little thing. And that scene with him and the original Wasp, mm-hmm. I thought was terrific. Yeah, I really like that scene a lot. So mm-hmm. you know, I would, I would not have a problem with them doing period stories of like Ant Man and the Wasp fighting in the Cold War. Yeah, uh, oh I, yeah, I would yeah. love to see. I, I think if. If they go that long, they might try and introduce the character. They obviously recast him, but they might try doing something with him in Agent Carter, um, which I I don't know if the second season is still in the 40s or if they're jumping ahead to the 50s. Um, they might do something like that. Um, and yeah, and getting back to the point, he, he does feel like 
the original hero for this Marvel universe, especially since Marvel doesn't have the rights to Fantastic Four currently, <laughs> and we're probably not going to see another Fantastic Four movie in our lifetime. Probably not. If, if the current if the current buzz around the new movie and its opening day box office is anything to go by. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I, it, I, again, I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time uh, on this because, like I said, I, I really didn't like it all that much, and I didn't just didn't want to do a whole show me running down a movie. I didn't, I didn't hate it. I did, and I wasn't like angry at it. I didn't think it was like an aggressively bad movie. I just thought, more, I thought they could have done a lot more with it, and I just felt like, eh. and oh, I'm, the other part I did like, I will mention when Ant Man kind of goes into like the little micro universe. Mm-hmm. That was cool because it was just oh, yeah. weird. I yeah. like that. I like, and it felt it felt like they were trying to like. I felt all the stuff with the daughter was just very pedestrian, and then to do that scene and not explain it and just have it be a strange, almost Stanley Kubrickian thing. I enjoyed that quite a bit. So it was like again, the stuff around the margins I thought was terrific, and then just the middle thrust, I was just like, oh, snooze fest. So. You know, well, I think I think this script probably had anywhere between thirty and forty different drafts <laughs> written by ten different people. Yeah, so it, there there are some really messy parts with the script, and I recognize all of them. But I don't judge this movie objectively. I realize that I got a real kick out of watching it because. I'm predisposed to liking it. Right. So that's, well, that's the ma- it's funny. That's the magic of movies. Just because yeah. just, just just last night I watched uh, this movie Saint Vincent with Bill Murray. I've heard of it. And yeah. uh, it's not a great movie, but I really liked it anyway. Like <laughs> I, I can completely. I watch it with Tracy and I watch it, and we both had the same conclusion. That was like, yeah, empirically, that is not a great movie, but we both really liked it. And I think much like with you with like Ant Man or I love Bill Murray so much mm-hmm. that I just. I'm like, I just liked it anyway because Bill Murray's the star and he's funny and everything else. So there's just something about sometimes movies can just carry you off. And so I'm glad you liked it. And I'm glad that it made a lot of money because uh, – and I like the tag at the end saying Ant-Man will be back in Captain America. I'm like, that's that's terrific. I, I want to see more of Paul Rudd as Ant-Man. Yeah, so me too. I'm very happy about that. So. I, I I want to see that particular power set. Now I've I've seen they did enough with it. I also I don't need a sequel to this movie, and I don't really anticipate we'll get one anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I got enough of seeing that power set on its own. Now I want to see that power set interacting with more Avengers yeah. than just Falcon. Yeah. Um, yep. I I want to see the cover of Avengers 223 with him on the head of Hawkeye's arrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that would be. Oh, that would be awesome. Oh, the very last thing we'll mention, I did like the mention, roundabout as it was, to Spider-Man. Yes. I thought yeah. that was terrific because it's like, oh, here we go. Yeah, we're all, that's going to be, that's gonna be no pun intended, amazing when they do all that. <laughs> that is only really going to be amazing. So, And if not amazing, then certainly spectacular. Certainly spectacular, yeah. So uh, I guess we're going to wrap that up. That's, uh, that's Ant-Man and that's uh, The Hidden Fortress. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you on the interwebs? I know there's many places. Uh, they can find me on Dead Bath and Spies, a Star Wars podcast, Yay! which is available on iTunes, as well as Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast, which is available on iTunes. And probably most importantly and most popularly, the Secret Origins podcast. Yay! So Very cool. And you know what? By the time this airs, I'll have like three or four more. Oh, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. I want, as long as it doesn't get in the way of more Dead Bath and Spies, I don't care. You can do as many shows as you want. 
there. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks everybody for listening. We th- I really appreciate it. As I mentioned in the last episode, we've been getting a lot of really good feedback for Film of Water, and I really appreciate it. And I, a lot of you are reaching out saying, I want to be on the show, which really makes me very happy because these are a lot of fun to do, and I like having different guests and stuff. So thanks everybody for listening. And again, I still don't have a sign-off phrase, so I guess we'll, we'll see you next time at the movies. I'll steal it from that other show. We'll see you later. The one thing uh, about Hidden Fortress is it did influence me in doing Star Wars because as I was beginning to uh, write the screenplay and put it together, um, I remembered Hidden Fortress and I remembered uh, the one thing that really struck me about Hidden Fortress and I was really intrigued by was the fact that the story was told from the two lowest characters. I decided that that would be a nice way to tell the Star Wars story, which is to take the two lowliest characters um, as Kurosawa did, and tell the story from their point of view, which in the Star Wars case is the two uh, droids. And, um, and that was the strongest influence, actually. Um, the fact that there was a princess uh, trying to get through uh, you know, enemy lines and everything, I think was more of a coincidence than anything else, because in my film, the princess is more a stand-and-fight kind of princess. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, I did have in the first, some of the first drafts, I had a little bit more of her and a, and a Jedi, an, an older Jedi, uh, trying to you know trying to escape and that sort of thing. But then it evolved eventually into uh, the story of Luke.